were these Chinese, white, Japanese, Dominican, Puerto Rican, no one caring about who the fuck they were. But going home was the toughest part because now you go home, you're like, fuck, I might get picked on because I got called out. Something like, why are you doing this white boy sport? What are you doing? I'm Justin J. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip hop moguls, world class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Joe Strummer once wrote that the future is unwritten. In the mid-1990s, Lower Manhattan was a fertile playground for a collective of skateboarding artists, musicians, actors, and charismatic misfits who were assembled to represent a burgeoning skate brand on Lafayette Street. It was impossible at the time to imagine that some of them would eventually help to define an entire era of New York City skate culture. In the moment, they were just an eccentric multicultural crew with a common enthusiasm for skateboarding, blunts, and carousing the streets of Lower Manhattan. Today's guest was the manager for the original Supreme store in New York City from 1996 to 2001. The store wasn't just a skate shop. From the moment you walked in, the austere interior design, sparse product display, loud music, the cast of characters smoking weed in the back room, and the attitude of the staff evoked a trademark mixture of mild intimidation and undeniable allure. Our guest and his team treated the store as if it was their own private clubhouse that also happened to be a profitable skate shop. Today, that clubhouse has grown into a global powerhouse brand worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But the market value and the growth of Supreme would not have been possible without the legacy of the creativity, talent, and raw flavor that the original team contributed to downtown culture. So what was it like being a skateboarder with an astoundingly diverse group of friends in one neighborhood, but then returning home at night to a community that simply didn't understand your passion for what they considered to be a white activity? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with the editor of the recently released 10-year anniversary edition of his love letter to New York City skateboarding, Full Bleed. Today, editor, event organizer, ambassador, and New York City skateboarder, Mr. Alex Corcoran. Alex Corcoran, thanks for sitting down, man. Good to see you. Hey, thank you. Um, I guess I want to just first, first off get right in it. I want to say congrats on the 10-year anniversary of Full Bleed. It's a really amazing document of skateboarding in New York City. And, you know, I put out a photography book recently. And so I know what, a, what, a, uh, what an amazing feat it is to, to promote and design and produce a photography book like that. So, yeah. you know, congratulations. Thank you. Um, looking back on it now, was there any obstacles that were harder than you thought they'd be? Is there any challenges that you didn't really anticipate? I think the only challenge was uh, falling in love with every photo. <laughs> you know, you go through like... Thousands and thousands of photos. Like in the first edition, it was, uh, I think, 62 photographers. This one went to 90. And it was just like 
going back and being like, wow, should I keep this? Should I take out that? Should I do that? Should I do it's like it's such a like a mind fuck, which is pretty interesting. And was there a huge difference between the two two editions? Like does the 10 year anniversary have more photos? Did you take anything out? Like, I took some out from the original and then I added a hundred more pages. Wow. Again, it was like doing it all over. But the best part about doing the second edition is that I already knew what to do. It's just just needed like it's the editing process was the, the only thing that the only challenge overall. Yeah. The first edition was done by Vice, and Sarouche was like, we had a list of publishers, and Vice was the first one, and we had like Rizzoli. We had a whole bunch of people and went to Vice with me, and my partner Andre and Ivory, Sarah, and um, they saw it. They're like, oh, this looks great. We all looked. We both looked at each other. All three of us. I was like. We're not even done yet. <laughs> well, did you guys start with a page count and work backwards? Or you kind of just grew until what it is, what grew, it is? Grew into it. Like, it was so organic. And it was, like, the, one of the most awesome projects I've done. It was, like, seriously, pretty much a flawless thing. It was pretty awesome. The 10-year anniversary, I got nervous because of the COVID. So none of us, Andre Razo or Ivy Sarah, we didn't, or myself, then we didn't have the actual drive anymore. But it was locked in where Andre used to work at because that's where we used to have our meetings like twice a week. This place got shut down. Oh, wow. So, I mean, like the physical files you didn't necessarily have yeah, access like to. Yeah, like Vice had it, but they had it on some old school like. PsychOS drive. Yeah, exactly. So I was just like tripping out. And I was already in the in the middle of like getting a publisher for us. And, and I was like, got to do the 10-year anniversary. They were like, oh, you know. We should just let it be. I was like, no, it's time to do it again. And uh, luckily, by the luck of whoever, they opened up for, for Andre. Andre's like, I got the file. Send it to you. Nice. Got it. And then uh, I started just knocking it out. And then uh, the publisher that uh, that we did it with, with Salamander Street from London, he hit me up. He's like, I'll publish it. But like, there's one thing. You think you can get Tony Hawk to do the forward? And I was like, I think I could do that. <laughs> So I hit up uh, Bruno Musso because Bruno Musso did the, the Tony Hawk, Hawk Hawk tour with him and all that stuff. And I I known Tony for a long time, but like, you know, not in the way where I could be like, hey, what's up? So I was like, Bruno, hit up Tony. I need him to do a forward talk about New York. And how did, how did that come about? I mean, I'm curious. Obviously, Tony Hawk is, you know, Tony he's Hawk. King. He's yeah. the king. Yeah. Um, and I could see why from a marketing standpoint, you'd want his name attached. Of course. But. In terms of what he actually had to say, were you impressed with what he came up with other I, than I, just him being him? It, it's like the first email was like, hey, what's up, Alex? Like, uh, I don't really know what to say. I was like, just talk about your first experience here and like what New York means to you every time you come here. What, how do you feel? And once he put it together, it was like, perfect. I was like, dude, there it is. I was like, I was like you're a pro at this. Like, stop, <laughs> stop trying to lie, <laughs> you know? He's so He was so good and he's such a great man and like, for somebody like Tony to be still the dude in skateboarding and for to have him in my book, to have him do the forward was like, like yeah, man, this That's is awesome. It was amazing. It's like, uh, you know, watching like my first board was a Tony Hawk. And then like I got to know him throughout the years later on. And then he does a forward with a book that I was doing. So everything was just awesome. And then uh, my friend Dan helped me edit and do the rest of the book, the, the next hundred pages and some of the, in some of the stuff that we took in and out. 
I'm curious. It's it seems like it's it's almost regarded as a definitive document of skateboarding in that time. Maybe not necessarily by you guys, but kind of you know outward looking in. And you know, once you define something that way, it takes on a whole new life. And I'm curious, especially moving forward with the second edition, was there any political decisions of people like giving you shade because they weren't included, or was there people that some people felt like were included but maybe not deserved to be? I mean, was there any? Did you have to address any of that? Um, there's like. Three or four photographers that were like, well, I'm not sure because they still didn't realize how impactful I was going to do this book because I'm passionate about skateboarding. That's that's my bloodline, a thousand percent. So they're here, here and there. And, and some people be like, why did you add this? I was like, do you know how the editing process goes? Yeah. Like, I was like, I was like, I didn't look at a hundred photos. I was like thousands and thousands of thousands of photos and finding the right one, finding the high res, not the blurry one, yeah. you know? A lot of the stuff was film. A lot of the stuff was um, digital. People send me a digital file. I'm like, I tell them what size, and they'll send me the wrong size. And I'm like, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. So it, it's just like, but it looks good in a magazine. I was like, this is a book. I was like, I was like let, me, let me clarify this stuff. It's, a, it's an actual, it's going to be, this not a magazine forever. you throw away. It's going to live forever. Yeah, it's going to live on your shelf. What about from the skateboarders? Were there was there politics in terms of no. people who thought they should be included, or other no. skaters who thought that maybe someone else shouldn't have been included? No, no. I think everyone was very everyone, for what I know, you know, everyone was very satisfied. On the first edition, the, the funniest story was Andy Kessler. Andy Kessler was like, "Hey, I heard what you're doing. I want to see it." I was like, "Andy, you know, it's my book." And he came over to the um, Andre's office. And he saw, he's like, this is cool. <laughs> it's like, I like Richard. Because everyone thought I was going to do a Supreme book. Yeah. Or like under the umbrella of just my crew. For me, Full Bleed was for everyone. It's like everyone that skates New York. I wanted to show that New York was our background. It was our skate park. So the way, if you flip through the book, you see that it's not a, like you see a skateboard magazine, you're like, see somebody doing a kickflip and you just know that's what it is. Or like a surfing Thing like you just know like that's it, but that's only our eyes. I wanted people to see what you, the, the you book was speaks to, to the world. Yeah, like to everyone. So I didn't make it for only skaters. I made it for like everyone else who didn't skate, who wanted just curious and like how they see everything. You know, that's a fine line to walk. I mean, we did kind of a similar thing with with our book because I wanted it to just not be inside baseball. Exactly, people from Hawaii, people in the surf community. But at the same time, it's like you don't want to like make so a barrel is when you go inside the way. Yeah, you know, you yeah. don't want to dumb it down. So it's a it's a fine line to walk. So you know, I spent ten years on the North Shore shooting for this book, and I didn't intend it this way, but. The year that we ended, it kind of just really became a pretty significant milestone. Like a lot of things have changed, whether it's like the advent of social media and real estate costs and the WSL kind of changing hands and the Brazilians taking over. So in other words, it's just, it's a really interesting document of a period in time. And I feel like your book is similar. And I'm wondering, like if you were to do from scratch the same book today, like what would that book look like? They go pretty much look the same because I, so? I, I want everyone to be a part of it. It's it's growth, but it's the new community, right? And you want to make sure like you get the right people, the right vibe and the right energy because like pictures speak energy. It's not like film, film, you get kind of like, you kind of, you get bored or you could sleep through it. But when you look at a photo book and it's done well, and I can't wait to go through yours, <laughs> you know, it's like, 
it's so satisfying because I still hear people tell me like, dude, that one page, and I'm, and I say it to them, they're like, that that looks so good with the old lady looking yeah. and the, like with the expression. I was like, that's exactly what I wanted. I didn't want I didn't want to hear like I remember that trick. I wanted to hear like, are you looking at the whole the story? The that story of yeah. yeah. So I mean, obviously the faces have changed. Has the culture changed that much? I mean, like what I'm getting at is if you were to do this book today, maybe your approach would be the same, but the face of the book, would it be drastically different or is it? It would be different. I mean, I would obviously keep it street skating. There's only like maybe four skate park photos in there. But other than that, I want people to know the streets of New York, you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's what gravitated everyone towards the book. It's like, cause it's like you're walking 42nd street and you'll be that person that doesn't know nothing but skateboarding. We're like, Hey, wow, that was that that was that that kid doing, you know? Yeah. And seeing that photographer on the floor being all dirty, it's like you know, because uh, skate and surf photos, they're not really like made up. It's like you have to like, you got to be in it. You got to be in the culture. And it, and if you see it, if see if you see somebody on the floor, I mean, besides our, ourselves that that live it, you're like, what the fuck are these guys doing? You know, like yeah. So it's like it's pretty much showing people like remember when we were. Alling over the pump, and you're seeing this photographer shooting us. You thought, and we wouldn't land the trick for an hour. Well, here goes the photo to prove it. Like nice. that it looks great. So you know, you mentioned Supreme, and I want to get into that because cool. you have a real particular insight in that. You were the store manager on Lafayette for how long? What, what From like mid '96 till 2004. Wow! But I've been part of the family from day one, like from from 1994 when it opened up. At that time, there was the the skate shops in New York kind of died. There was Soho Skates, there was ODs, there's Benji's, Skate NYC. And when all the shops died, like around 92, there was nothing. So there was like a two-year gap wow. of like, where do we get boards? And then PSNY was like the rollerblade skateboard yeah. place and also Blades. And that didn't, that didn't speak to us as, uh, as core skaters. It was kind of hard, but luckily we were all sponsored already, so there was there was never a problem. Yeah. So that's why the family was so tight, you know. Well, so you know, talk to me about the the actual store itself, because you know I've read interviews with you talking about how you almost viewed it as just your own personal clubhouse on yeah. Lafayette Street, and you know I definitely remember going in there, and and there'd be these cast of characters going in and out of the back room, and like weed smoke and hip hop playing, and there definitely was this sense that there was this backstage area that not everybody got to experience. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, the back of the shop where we were, which is where yeah. we hid, is where we chilled out. It's where we had everything. Like, it, you would think that there's 20 motherfuckers working, and it was only two of us. Yeah. But it would be like, yo, give me a size large. All of a sudden, it gets tossed, and people are like, what the hell is going on back there? And they smell the weed, and they see, like, people coming in with bags of 40s, and, like, we're all just chilling. And you see, like, Justin, like, you peek, somebody will peek in and be like, is that Justin Pearson's? Like, yeah. Oh, by the way, boop, slide the door closed. Like. But what I found so interesting is that, you know, unlike, say, your corner barber shop or that cool record store or maybe even other skateboard stores that were, you know, run by kids, essentially, you would walk in there and it didn't have that kind of ratty DIY cluttered feel to it. It felt like intimidating because it was closer to an art gallery. It was austere and it was super clean and it was white, tall ceilings. Not a lot of merchandise relative to the floor space. I mean, so, you know, talk to me about, like, what was your an average day like for you there? Average you know? day, it's, we go in, there'll be two of us, 
We go in, make sure the store is pristine, take care of everything. The thing is, James gave us a formula, and we followed it. The formula was keep the store pristine, keep it going, make money, do what you got to do. So that's that's the thing. He wasn't on our back. Like, and you had a lot of free reign to just free. Yeah, so pretty stayed. much he gave us he gave us a space to do whatever we want, but to make money, but to also make sure everything looks good and make keep it like a gallery. So that's why it kind of tripped people out because like we're a skate shop, but it doesn't didn't look like it Not at all. all. And even the vibe inside there was yeah. like a paradox between the fucking mayhem you knew was going on in the back room and how the front of the store looked. Exactly. And even the back room, like, it was organized. Like, large, medium, large, extra large. Like, it was pretty much placed everywhere. Yeah. Size run of shoes, placed everywhere. There's no, like, oh, dude, I don't know where's that. It's like, this is where we put this, this is where we put that. So we can't, we're the most organized, derelict skateboarders, I think, in the world. Because I think no one ran a skate shop ever like us until the cat lit off the back how we did it. Yeah. But no, it was something It was something out of this universe. Like, to this day, I still laugh, you know, because I look at shops like when I used to ODs. It was just like, it was just a mess. And we were just doing whatever. Which is what you would expect. Exactly. That's what was so interesting and, and that, about Supreme. And, and that was the difference. And then it's like, again, you couldn't tell who worked there. You'll walk in and be like, it'll be you and I that only work there, but we'll have 20 of our friends just roaming in and out the back, skating outside in the front, being in front of the store, sitting in the bench right by the window, and no one could figure us out. So yeah. that that's what kept everyone confused. And it was a clean shop, and it was organized, and you couldn't touch the shirts. Yeah. You just had to ask, like, you want, to <laughs> you want something? You come to come over here. Don't touch it. Or see, it's hanging. That's that's where it's at. That's yeah. where you look at it there. So, you know, I was kind of taking a, a trip down memory lane, getting prepared for this podcast. And, and I thought of, do you remember, there was a restaurant in the early 90s on Broadway called Ed DeBevick's. Do you remember that spot? Ed DeBevick's. It was like, I mean, it was nothing special. It was like kind of like a, almost an American diner concept, almost like a Johnny Rockets kind of vibe. But the whole shtick was that the entire staff was intentionally rude to you. Like you would walk in there right. and- I'm Trying to remember that shop. It's yes. like where, uh, it's right next to where, where, where Blades was, like on Bond and Broadway. Oh, yes. I remember it's that. Pretty yes. big spot too. Yes, yeah, it was huge So you, yeah. you'd go in there and like the waiter would come over and they would like sit down in your booth while you took their order all casually. And like sometimes they would like critique your order or just be like downright rude or whatever. But- the people loved it and they, they saw it as added value. <laughs> <laughs> they saw it as added value to to the experience, you know. Right. And and the Supreme Store in Lafayette was notorious for some of the attitude that some people would get when they came in there. And and it kind of ranged from indifference to outright insulting. But I'm curious, like, was that something that was directed from top down from the beginning, or was that just circumstantial in it terms was- of the inmates are running the asylum, and that's the vibe that kind of percolated what, to the top. Yeah, all it was, was that the inmates that ran the asylum was a perfect way to say it. Because it seemed like that attitude was definitely tolerated from top down, but it wasn't dictated. But you, you got to remember, like, already all of us were made skateboarders. Some of, us, some of us were models. Some of us were fucking already in movies. Next modeling agency upstairs. So it's like Ford modeling agency was upstairs on 270. So... No one still, we weren't cool. We, we, we were still like this gang that no one understood. We're wearing this bar logo. And it's like, why are 20 motherfuckers wearing bar logo shirts? Like, and going to the clubs and hanging out and red carpet, like treatment. Like people just didn't know what was going on. Because we were so young and emerging and no one understood it. Hip hop just started getting cool. 
hardcore and punk. We were part of the family from day one. So you see this bunch of like wild people. Just yeah. creative, interesting Cre- yeah, downtown that's it. people. You know, it's like, I always look back at it and I'm like, wow, like a ledger gallery. You know how these kids think they're cool with the arts? Like a ledger gallery was way ahead of its time. And that was part of our family, you know? So it's like, it was so, so many things happening at the same time. Like Max Fish, again, a part of our family. There's this bar called Spoon that my boy Lance owned. People I mean, just saw it navigating. And then like Bill Spector did all the nightlife stuff and walking in and out, doing whatever we wanted. It was just such a weird way how to navigate the city, but we're so young. There's no Instagram. There was no Facebook. There was no nothing where it's like, oh, these guys are cool. It's like, no, we we are shit and that's yeah. it. And we treated ourselves very high class mentally. We were already skateboarding like at the top and that's what it was. People like Peter BC, like fucking got the Calvin Klein ad with, with Kate Moss. Yeah. You know, I'm over here getting like Captain Morgan ads, you know, so it's like there's so much energy and good shit happening. There's a, a documentary about Tower Records that's on, on oh, yeah. Amazon. It's not the best documentary, but there's a great scene where they're talking about when they first signed the lease on the Broadway store and just talking about how unpopulated that whole neighborhood was. Yeah. So like when they signed, there was like feral dogs running down the street. I mean, same in Lafayette. Like that was yeah. not like oh, Lafayette the Lafayette that people think of now, you know? Like Lafayette was empty. All we had was Buffas. Who, if you know Buffa, who owned the place, it was hilarious. It, it was like it was like going into like a mafia diner. He'd be like, "Hey, what do you want, Bub?" And he called everyone Bub. <laughs> and, and his his grandmother was also like super old. She must have been like eighty at the time, like running the register, and like his wife. <laughs> it's like the way the whole Lafayette was ran was on some other level like it, it was strictly a movie it was like that's what it was yeah you could definitely film a movie like if somebody had like a full-on camera on every angle you'll you'll just crack the hell up so i mean getting back to the actual store itself what what was the cardinal sin what's the worst thing that a customer could do when they walked in and would they be treated more derisively by the staff if they were like entitled or cocky or if they were just like a kook buying a skateboard with their mom. Like what, what, what rubbed you guys at the worst? Oh, when they touched the t-shirts that were folded. <laughs> and then uh, the other one is like when they wanted us to grip their kid, that's like maybe already like 14, 15, like he gripped my board and we're like, get out of here with that. <laughs> it's like, go grip it yourself, figure it out. It's like, we don't work for you. <laughs> it's like you're a skateboarder. <laughs> Again, it's just that attitude. It's like, we're, we're already up here. We're already, we already hit that marker. So we were just like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I mean, looking back on it now, are you, are you surprised at, at what Supreme has grown into today as opposed to this little skate shop on Lafayette Street that you used to hang out with your friends? I mean, in terms of it growing from that to this global brand that in a lot of ways is not really even involved in skateboarding? Um, I, I'm totally not surprised. I knew it was happening before I left and reason why I left because I, I knew where the direction is already going and I knew it was for the great, but it wasn't for me anymore. Yeah. Cause I knew, I knew for me it was more, even though like the lifestyle and everything's fantastic and still is, I'm still the kind of the face of it. Like when people interview me and stuff, but um, I saw, I, I think the growth was phenomenal and I, I saw it coming I knew it was going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I wasn't surprised because all these other brands, try to emulate us and they had no idea what their origin came from 
all these already big fashion designers were like already about us. You know, of course, we had our Japanese family clientele that were the first ones that really put money into us. So it, it was just going to happen eventually. Why do you think that brand was able to accomplish what they did as opposed to, like, there was a lot of other brands that kind of emerged around the same time that had, you know, pretty legit backing and that were cool, whether it's, you know, Fat Farm or uh, Extra Triple Large, Soul. Triple Five Soul, right down the block. Those guys aren't around anymore. What's the difference? Why was it? The difference was that we were a bunch of kids together in our clubhouse. And that's. It was just that. It was authentic and it was undeniable. Yeah, it was just like, like Camilla owned Triple Five Soul, but she had a certain niche of a crew. Like Kim Gordon had extra large, but it was like that music niche, but like they weren't like, they're not like this. They're not like hanging out at the store. Liquid Sky raving at the time, killing it. But that wasn't going to last. Culture change. Yeah, cool. yeah. It's just like, you know, just something else that's just happening. With us, we're just a gang of skateboarders that weren't cool, and we were together, and we were already pro or super am, and just already doing things that people had no idea until later on in life. Is there Was there, like, a particular chapter in the history of Supreme that you, like, kind of point to as a milestone that, like, kind of was the beginning of the next level? Like, maybe, like, a certain collab or a certain— uh, I think, I think uh, I mean, I know it was uh, right when we we got together with, with Nike, with the Nike Dunks and, like, the New York Dunk and the Danny Super Dunk came out. It started shifting our clientele, and that's where everything started evolving, like, super quick. It went from being, like— core friends and our Japan family being core to like, now we see the kids up from the streets are like, they started seeing like what's going on. So they looked at us as a new store and they don't understand this from 1994. But like, it was just the, I think it's just that dunk, the whole thing with the dunks when, when Nike finally got it together after they did Xavier and then they had Bam try to do something and none of that working. But when they finally found out the SB was like, as simple as that. Kevin Scotty Keating. Yeah. So it just kind of just exploded from there. And that was like a couple of years right before I left. When I saw that, I was like, all right, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. Like, per, I good, per, good luck, but it's not for me anymore. Yeah, yeah that, that pretty much, yeah. I, I, I just it wasn't part of my, my Supreme's always going to be part of my soul. It's just I didn't have the heart of, like, dealing with that anymore. Yeah. You know, so it seems like you know it's really difficult for for a brand to kind of cultivate this aura of exclusivity, and a lot of luxury brands try to do that by just being very cost prohibitive, and you know they're aspirational. And like take Louis Vuitton, for instance, is like, oh well, we're expensive. Most people can't afford us, and by extension, they're exclusive and 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 cool. Supreme has a much different approach, and they handle that really with like limited supply in a lot of ways, but. You know, now everybody seems to do that. It's kind of become a blueprint for, you know, yeah, ever, ever, you know McDonald's doing a yeah. limited edition chicken sandwich or whatever. It's amazing, right? <laughs> but, but I'm curious, like when you guys first started, when the store first opened, was that limited supply run a product of just a small brand trying to not have a bunch of extra inventory? Or was that a real deliberate strategy by James from that, the that very a, beginning? That was a James strategy. He's a smart man. I give him, give him fucking big props, man. He's a, such a great person and, uh, and on top of that, everything like he knows what he's doing he always has a vision even when he had Stussy when he did Union to Supreme it's like he's always had like his eye on the prize of what to do and how to keep things cool in his area and how to pick and choose the people that worked for him that was something that his strategy is 
very awesome. So I mean, if you were to, to distill his strategy and his real like core skill sets, it's it's like marketing and and being able to assemble a team, whether it's you or the actual skate team, and kind of build a brand off of that. Yeah, I mean, because he, he also listens to, to to people. He listens to like the people that he has on the on the crew. So that's something that's very important. And I'm curious, like, if you have product that's so valuable on the secondary market and there's a finite amount of them, how does the staff, how does the store address the, the, the people that work there, like, actually manipulating or holding back product and deciding who gets to actually buy the stuff? Like, how does that work? Because, I mean, you have, like, a, a, say, whatever, for example, a T-shirt that's $60 if you can get it, and it'll eventually be worth $600 on the secondary market. Like, how do they address staff just wanting to hoard stuff and not make it actually I'm, available to them? It's such a beast now, you can't even hold on. It's like, it's, just like, it's gonna happen. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of those things. Like, like, even in the LA store, like, I see people outside, they go in, they buy something, and they're already selling it the minute they walk out the door. Or they sold it by the, they sold it by the time they get to register to pay for the shirt. Wow. Which is pretty wild looking at that now compared to what it was back then. I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, can you think of another brand that's even a close parallel to that? Nope, not at all. It's amazing. There's, there's nothing, there's no brand that, that's even close to it because, once again, Supreme came with such a raw energy and raw power that it, it makes people want it. I mean, you know, we gave that need to, it's like, it's like, it's like heroin to people, you know? Yeah. Like now people are like, they didn't even understand why they're wearing it. They just know that it's good. And they see like the coolest people behind it, the coolest artists. Now it's like the hip hop artists or the rock and roll. Like, and they see all these things happening. They're like, wait, but how did this happen? But a lot of majority of people don't know it happened ages ago. It's just the family just got bigger and bigger Yeah, in, in, internally. So that's where all that thing comes out. And what was the relationship with... Uh, Japan in terms of the explosion of that popularity. Like I heard stories of people coming into the store and, and just like in broken English being like, how much for the store? You're like, excuse me? Like, no, no, no. I, how much for the entire store? Yeah. I want to buy the store. I mean, Japan always has so much love for like American culture. So that's, we're just the next thing. And they're, they're very, very fast knowing like what's cool and what's next. So we knew that that was going to be like the first wave of like not just skateboarding. It was the Japan culture. Yeah. So, you know, we had um, Paul Rodriguez on the show last season, and we were talking about diversity and inclusion and racism and skateboarding. And he had a great line. He was say, he said, that the only thing we discriminate on in skateboarding is, like, whether you push Mongo. <laughs> like, or, like, Yo. you critique the actual trick, but not the person's appearance or ethnicity or something Nothing. like that. Um, it's interesting, though, because, you know, looking back on, on skateboarding in the 90s, your crew seemed to be extremely diverse. You know, it was like a real eclectic mix of these kind of downtown misfits that really did a lot of cool shit. But I don't know if that was representative of, of skateboarding nationwide, which was traditionally, I would say, viewed as like a pretty white endeavor for, yeah. for, for the most part. And, you know, I'm curious, it's definitely become a cornerstone of, of pop culture now, but also like a cornerstone of like of hip hop culture, which it never was. And, you know, up until you could speak to this better, like, maybe the early 2000s? I mean, what were some of the factors for that transformation? I mean, if you have somebody like like Lil Wayne or Pharrell, are they one of the factors for that transformation or are they a product of it? it it's once again, like people found something that was cool. They lost the baseball, the basketball, football. And look at like soccer now. Soccer's cool with everyone, but soccer wasn't cool like for the majority of people. And same thing with skateboarding. It's like just something 
people to fall in love with. Lucky people like Pharrell and like Lil Wayne, they had a wider audience and they and they fell in love with it, I I believe. So they kind of like brought it out and that's what brought the new spectrum out. Before, we were just the colors of Benetton hanging out and no one knew why we were hanging out together. Yeah. And that's what I always called ourselves. Like, <laughs> a bunch of people together and like, especially in the early 90s, people would see us and they're just like, what is this? I've heard so many people say that. It's like, yeah. They couldn't figure it out why we were all together. But again, because it was so specific to New York or, you know, maybe L.A., but it definitely didn't represent skateboard culture as no, a whole. No, not at all. I mean, if you look back then, it was like, you had magazines. All you saw was the blue skies and California ramps and, yeah. you know, let's say Tony Hawk being one of the biggest faces in it. Like, that's what the skateboarder looks to everyone. Yeah. What we were doing, they are like, these guys? No way. That's no way in hell. I mean, I'm curious. Well, so, you know, we had, we had Leo Fitzpatrick on the show too. And he, he talked about the experience of living in New Jersey and coming into the city to go to like Brooklyn banks. And there would be this whole community of people that knew each other from the skate spot. And it was probably very diverse, but it didn't necessarily represent the makeup of where those people lived when they went back home. And, and I'm curious, like as a black skateboarder growing up in Washington Heights, like, do you have kids that you grew up with who never got into skateboarding and at some point were like, yo, why are you doing this like downtown white shit? Like, did they not understand it? That was like my biggest thing in the eighties, like mid eighties when it started, that was like, that was the biggest mind fuck to deal with. Cause I got called out something like, why are you doing this white boy sport? What are you doing? My parents were like, this is going to be a fad. I'm like, no, this is my life. So people didn't see it. And then uh, when Freddie, who got me into Freddie Valerio, who got me into skateboarding, we started skating, and then we met up with Giz, and then Justin Pierce and Loki. They were from the Bronx, and they they came down. We all just met, and it's just kind of magic from there because we all had that one thing in common was the board. And then people made people more confused. And then we only, we had one location called the Brooklyn Banks, and that's where we all gathered. We had no skate parks, so that's why we're just everyone was there. And when you see stuff like that, it's almost that kind. Of, Almost be repeated because it, again, it was so innocent. There was there's nothing in the world, anything of, of the sort. You know, like, who are these Chinese, white, Japanese, Dominican, Puerto Rican? No one caring about the world. Who the fuck they were? But going home was the stuff, the toughest part. Because now you go home, you're like, fuck, I might get picked on. Yeah. But when we were together over there at the banks, that was like safe haven. Like, so, so all the conflict and the confusion and the shade was really. From your home community, not not coming into the skate skateboarding. Community. Like we would share, we would share like hamburgers and like drinks together and twenty five cent juice. Like it was when I tell people this stuff, it's like the way that things are separated now and how they try to separate more and more. That was never, never a thing. There's no like transgender, gay, black, white like separation. It was like, oh, we're together, we're doing this, and you looked at each other, and be like. This is it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, and you just knew, and that's why the the family of skateboarders, especially back then, was so tight, and why everyone just didn't understand. Other people, like people in neighborhoods, like you come up from poor neighborhood or rich or middle class, and it didn't matter where you were from back then. That that wasn't even a question. That that wasn't even talked about. Wow. You know, it was like, oh, we're hanging out all day, all night, and that's it. Um, so I think, you know, the last time I saw you, I ran into a good buddy of mine, Liam, got to give him a shout out. Love Liam. Love. 
He's a crowd pleaser. Everyone loves yes, him. Yes, he is. Um, he had an amazing opening at the Burton shop. And, you know, you and I got to chat. That's how we set this up. You had really amazing things to say about Jake Burton. Talk to me about what he meant to you. Uh, Jake. Jake meant the world to me. And thanks to Pookie and um, Bruno Musso. Bruno Musso, because he worked for Burton. And since Bruno Musso was one of the originators of Shut Skateboards, he took that and brought brought the kids in. Because Bruno Musso was one of the originals of Shut. And even the team that Bruno brought with Shut was like Coco Santiago, Sheffy, Billy Wallman, Mike Kepper. He brought this beautiful mixed, mixed crowd again. And he did the same thing for Burn. And like, that's how that kind of like Bruno changed it. And then Pookie got hired and Jake was a part of the family right, right from then and there. And Jake never hiccuped with us. Like he's always been like such a beautiful man. And like, he was just like, you guys are the shit, <laughs> you know? And like, he would not hesitate to call us the minute that like, he got into town and hang out and go to dinners and just chat it up and have a good time, you know? And it wasn't being like, so what should we do for Burton? It was like, we're hanging out. Yeah. That's what I love about Jake. Like he never treated us like, all right, you guys are part of the family, but like, what's going on? It was like, no, we're hanging out. It's like, well, oh, Alex, you like drinking vodka? I got a bottle of vodka downstairs for you at the store. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was very like, he was like dad. Yeah. You know? It's funny you said that because I know uh, I've talked extensively with with Benji Weatherly about yeah. how much Jake went, meant to him. And yeah. he, um, he literally viewed him as like a father figure, yeah, totally. which is which is interesting, too, because, I mean, if you look at Burton, they had analog for a while, probably longer than they would have if Benji wasn't involved. Um, Big time. And, you know, they just recently they sold Channel Islands recently. But for the most part, they didn't really have that big of a hand in surfing or skating. But it seems like both you and Benji were almost handpicked to be a part of the family, a part of the brand. Oh. Um, wh- why do you think that was? I don't know. I think it's just uh, the way we maneuver with everything, the way that we have loving for everyone, that we care. We care about the sport, even though like me and Benji aren't the biggest snowboarders on earth at all. <laughs> but, you know, but we know our shit and we know the, our people. And like we've grown to have everyone in our circle be a part of us. I think that was something that that Jake loved. And same thing that he did with Pookie, you know? That Pookie is Jake's other guy, you know, his other son, you know? So it's like, I guess it just happened naturally, organically, as you could say, you know? What do you think? I mean, was there something inside him that really just felt the need to kind of pay it forward to these people he thought deserved it? Or, I mean, how did, I'm just curious why... Why you? Why Benji? Why Pookie? Why anybody, really? You got all the money in the world and all the success. Like, why would you do that? I guess, I guess the love. Yeah. They, You know, when you see somebody with the love of something and it's natural, you connect with people like that, you know? And I guess that's what it was. Because, like, it's funny you asking that. And it's like the way, like, when people told me, like, asked me, like, how I got into skateboarding. I was like, I got into it because my best friend. And I just fell in love with it. And next thing you know traveling everywhere and have all these great people around me, have you, we're doing books and we're like sharing all that energy. And it's like, it's good energy and people gravitating to each other, just not being a dick. You know, <laughs> I guess that's the best way I could say it. Like, we're not assholes. We're just like, we know how to f- have fun in life. We walk around with like, you know, like good energy. You know, our jokes could be heavy and people won't get it. But <laughs> overall, like, 
we're just fun. Do you see that 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 ethos that's so important to you that you talked about? And um, do you do you think that that's still a major part of skate culture now? I mean, is is there a new generation that's kind of carrying the torch, or does it has it uh, changed a lot? With the new generation, I see it here and there, but it's very like I said, the way the world right now is being chopped up and being turned into categories, it's fractured. It's, yeah, it's making yeah, it's making it very very hard. Lucky, I like I do um adult go skate day and I bring people together to have fun. And I just want people to understand it's like just to have fun and skateboarding's fun. And I'm skating with you guys. So it's just I'm I'm gonna be here for till it till it's over for me. Till the wheels fall off. Yeah, till the wheels fall off. You know, I wanna make sure that when people are around me they have a great time. And that's why any event I do, people smile and talk about the King of Spring and all those other contests I used to do with Billy Rohan. Everyone's just like Please, please bring it back because that was just a raw, fun time. Just like, just let's hang out and just, just close our eyes and just go. Yeah, you know, no, no, like, oh, this and that. It's like, no, we're all together. Seeing people like Tyshawn grew up on my contest and all these other kids, like, I'm just like, wow. And it's because it was through that energy, and that's why Tyshawn's the, the shit. You know, he's like the dude because. He knows, you know. Is that one of the things you're most proud of? Like yeah. being able to oh, kind of foster careers and, oh, and yeah. relationships of skaters like yeah, that? Yeah, I love like giving people giving people the tools, the door. I kick the door for anyone. Like if you're ready like to have fun and enjoy it, here you go. Because, you know, like making it, making it in skateboarding and having all this opportunity, you know, I'm not going to keep it for myself. I just want to do the same thing what Jake has done or what James has done. It's like, all right, here goes your clubhouse. Go have fun, but take care of it. Yeah, with with the caveat. Yeah, take, take care, care of your shit. And take care of your shit. Yeah, yeah. We all got faults, but take care of your shit because uh, that's the most important thing to to value what's around you. Take care of it. Be yeah. respectful. Know know that you're not the only one in the world. Like this is our world, but we have a special one that we could run and run around it. Well, well, let me ask you this though. So that, that mindset of like self-respect and respect for others and being responsible, did that grow out of Supreme in some weird kind of Mr. Miyagi way that, that James had created, or were you there because you already had that and you saw that? We already had that. We just needed a, you know, we needed a house to roam in and we didn't, you know? So we, we got lucky because of James, like James, once again, he gave us this house that he just let us walk in. All he said was take care of it. Run it the way I want. That's it. He barely came into the store. Like you, you could count in your hands. Like probably came in the store five times a year. Oh. You know. Do you keep in touch with him now? Yeah, yeah. we got the same birthday. As a matter of fact. <laughs> nice. yeah. Um, yeah, he seems like a, a really. I've never. I don't know him personally. Um, and he he's, seems like kind of a reclusive figure, at least in terms of doing interviews. Like I don't think I've ever seen a really in depth yeah. you know, interview with him. But um, I did used to live with Bianca. Oh, no for, way. For two, two, three years, she lived at my storefront on 3rd Street. I see. Cool. So we always like to end the podcast by asking guests to kind of pay it forward and, and plug something that they're not directly involved in that maybe the public doesn't know about. Like, is there something you want to plug, whether it's like a book or a movie or a skater or a cause that you want to kind of give some shine to? Uh, uh, the thing right now, it's like, I just want people to be aware of themselves and know that this world's not shutting down. It's not going nowhere. Just got to keep your head up, keep that PMA, positive mental attitude, bad brains, boom. <laughs> you know, then I think that's the best thing I could tell people right now that, that I would be most proud of 
especially after this two year and a half of craziness. Yeah. You know, it's like I I I that's the thing I'm just trying to show people. Like I never shut down. Just keep keep the faith. Keep keep, keep the faith. Keep man. one foot in front of the Everything's other. Everything's gonna everything happens for a reason. And if you know how to keep that attitude, and yes, life is hard, nothing's easy. And the biggest things, talk to your friends. That's a giant thing. If you need somebody to talk to, talk to them. Don't don't hesitate. I think that's the biggest thing I want people to do. Because I've I've gone through my personal stuff and I found somebody to talk to. I got an elephant off my back and yo, life's good now. It's like you see that door, you're like, oh shit, that happened. You yeah, know? I've, I've been really into this notion of of you know giving people flowers while they're alive, metaphorically. Yeah. You know, and yeah. if you think back, like sometimes you ever have someone that just pays you a compliment out of nowhere and it just it fucking changes the whole course of your day. Of you course, know, and a, so I've, I've been trying to do that to others as much as possible. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great feeling, and I I always uh, really want that for everyone because once again, what we we're just talking about, it's like right now they're putting everyone such so many categories that. No one knows what to do anymore. So it's like, all right, it's time like people like you and I that just like, all right, let me mend this. Like, let me weld this together. Like everyone needs to stop right now. Like, you know. Well, it's such a trip too. We were talking with uh, David Hershkovitz from Paper. We had him on the podcast and just talking about just like the club and nightlife scene as a whole. How um, like our friend Liam, we were just talking about. So Liam has points on this bar on Avenue C, Avenue B, that used to be the Save the Robot space. Yeah, yeah. And- I mean, that place, that was like my first summer when I first moved to New York. And, and you would see people in limousines. You would see like weird junkie skaters. You would see celebrities, model. Like it was Puerto Ricans from uptown. Like nobody, I, I just can't think of a place where people would voluntarily congregate like that anymore. Uh, I mean, so. I, call, I, call our, I call ourselves the stepchild of Studio 54 because when I was doing Limelight with my boy Rob Rivera, it's the same thing. It will be like, the goth room and be all that, but everyone just kept crossing each other and having a good time. Everyone like from Jersey, from uptown to Brooklyn to Queens, like gay, straight, whatever you were. There was nothing. There was like we're all dancing to the same song and hugging each other and being like ah, sweating next to each other. And that's that's those things are rare. You know, save the robots, limelight, palladium days. Like man, and it just seems so ironic because on on one hand the the public is so aware of, you know, racial diversity and there's all these kind of like buzzwords and it's very PC and there's a lot of minefields and people are aware of that. And then there's definitely a, a huge upside to that. But at the same time, it's, it's ironic that a lot of people are self-segregating, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like if you go to a club and, it, and it's all like hip hop dudes or it's all Puerto Ricans or whatever, yeah. it's not because there's someone at the door not letting other people in. Like that's because they're self-segregating. Exactly. Hey. I'm going to tell, say it, listen to George Carlin. Watch that. Listen to that dude. There's George, your plug. There's your plug. Listen to George Carlin. That's cool. all. I wear the shirt now. George <laughs> Carlin was right. It means a lot to me to wear that shirt. And I get so many compliments because everyone's like, you know what? He was right. I was like, yeah. If you listen to it, that's like, he speaks the truth. Like, love my Richard Pryor, but like George Carlin like spoke a way different language. Like, that's your plug. Well, good parting words. Alex, thanks for taking the time to sit no down. Um, Thank you. Do you, uh, you have anything that you're doing you want to plug real quick? Just ready to just make this happen. Live by the beach. <laughs> <laughs> make that money and get yeah, that, that yeah, shoreline real estate. Big. Live by the beach, man. I'm I mean, almost there. I'm going to be 50. There. Okay. All right. Well, you're going to start. Maybe we can start with like downtown or Rockaway and move, your, move up to Malibu. Exactly. <laughs> Try to do the Hawaii life with all my boys out there. 
All right. Well, yo, good to see you, man. Right. I appreciate good it. Good Thank you so much. That was great, man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations. And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.